Welcome to the Brick by Brick podcast. I'm Ben and I'm here with John and Ryan. For today's episode, we're going to discuss the geographic area of choice for most investors when they're first deciding where they want to make their first real estate investment. We're going to talk about markets and submarkets, timing of purchases and how to source those deals, and the process itself of narrowing down your search as an individual investor. Begin to decide where it is you want to allocate your capital both for your first investment, for intermediary investments, and for future investments. So guys, let's jump right into it. Maybe we can talk a little bit about our own processes and how we got into the first markets we found and what drew us to those markets. I think that might be a good place to start. Ryan, you want to take a crack at it? Sure. The way that I break down this discussion is starting at the top. We're looking at things on a market level. And then beneath that, you begin to consider the sub-market and then beneath that, you have different neighborhoods or other areas within that submarket. So when I was making my investment decisions locally, um, or at least most recently, what I was originally contemplating was which market I wanted to be in, which for me was an easy decision because I was pretty limited in that I wanted to do it close to where I was geographically located. And... Beyond that, I was looking at a variety of factors such as the the entry point on the on a purchase, which limited me or at least precluded me from buying in, let's say, uh, an area like Manhattan. And then lastly, I was looking for neighborhoods that kind of struck a balance between something that had a, a little bit of a positive outlook moving forward, but that wasn't so saturated, it wasn't so competitive nowadays that I felt like where I, to where I felt future opportunity or future values had kind of passed me by. Yeah, I think where to invest is a broad topic. And the way that I got started was just, I mean, if you listen to the podcast before, my investing story is like, I just wanted to buy a place near where I was already living. So, uh, you know, I was living in Manhattan and I wanted to buy a place in the greater New York City area. So I bought a place in New Jersey, which was the closest affordable place at the time to where I was living. But the the factors that go into where you want to invest, I think, depend a little bit on your investment thesis. So maybe we can get in a little bit to that. You know, I, I think from a very high level, the easiest way to say where I want to invest is I want to invest in a place that makes me the greatest returns, but that may not exactly be the greatest returns monetarily may not be correlated with your goals in doing real estate investing. So for example, if you can make great returns in a city very, very far away from where you live, that might be nice. But if you want to get into doing investing, say full time, or you want to be a real operator, totally outsourcing your investments to a third party in a different city is not going to fulfill the goals that you have of being a real estate operator. I know Ryan actually started investing not locally, right? Your first deal was in Nashville. Is that right? Memphis. Memphis. Turn- okay. I, wish it was, so close. I wish it was in Nashville. So close. I think yeah. that would have appreciated quite Walking a bit more Memphis. than Memphis did. It, it, Memphis. Was a, it was a turnkey investment, right? Yeah. It was. It was a construction on it. Yeah, it was a single family yeah purchased it for right around 50 grand and rented for like 675 a month. How did you find that? So that was that was back when I was wrapping up college. My brother and I were looking for a turnkey investment to get something under our belts and we had kind of perused a few different markets outside of New York because we were a little bit more capital constrained and What is peruse exactly? Peruse? Do we browse? No, I mean like how did, why, how did you browse? This, <laughs> this is why the geography map placed them in New Jersey because if you're outside of New Jersey you don't use the word peruse. No, no, no. I mean <laughs> I mean how how did you peruse? I, I mean, know I'm just so <laughs> at the time well we were first and foremost looking for something or for an area where we could buy something buy a single family house for under 100k and be looking at rents that were, you know, able obviously able to support the investment and and yield a decent return, but also to know that we're not buying in what we would have considered a war zone or an area where we wouldn't have really felt comfortable owning property, especially remotely. So I think at the time we were looking at Memphis. I think we had briefly considered some areas of Atlanta. I think there were some. I think either Dallas or Houston. There were some providers over there that we had explored very briefly. But ultimately, Memphis was the first one that we... It it seemed to tick all the boxes. It was also easy to get to, which for us was kind of important because we figured if if our manager wasn't holding up their end of the bargain and we had to physically go there, we wanted somewhere where it wasn't going to cost us $1,000 
to take a round trip flight to go for two days just to make sure that the house wasn't on fire. Yeah, it's funny you guys uh, mention both the uh, geography and familiarity with certain areas because I know while I am not as far in my career as either of you, what brought me to Ryan first and then John was the fact that I had an interest in college and was seeking in college my first investments, particularly in the Hudson County area across the water, in West New York, in Union City, in North Bergen. And and the reason for that was twofold. One of them was that the market was strong. There was consistent rental growth and sales growth over a certain period of time, which I was tracking and was was excited about as an investor. But there was also a familiarity factor in the sense that the person and partner that I was planning on going into this business with had family and friends who had been contractors in the area for many years. And so I understood that I was going in for myself, looking at the market and and having a familiarity with how to source deals and underwrite deals, but had a partner who had experience with construction and understanding how much things cost. So I think it's probably important to also think about who do you know in certain areas? I mean, it's natural to want to invest, I think, close by. Um, And if the numbers can work for you, then what are the other mitigating factors that might bring you closer to pulling the trigger on a deal in that neighborhood or maybe making you look a little bit further away? Well, yeah, I I think really high level, the the way that I think about geography. So a lot of times when I look at an area, I'm looking at it for buy and hold purposes. At least that's how I've been you know, traditionally doing it. I think for flips, it's a little bit different. We can talk about that. But yeah. for a buy and hold area, I like to come up with a thesis for investing in that area. Mm-hmm. And if I don't have a thesis that I feel comfortable with, or if I can't think of one, then that's probably a bad sign. So, you know, the greatest example for me is the the tri-state area, like the, the New York City suburbs. So the thesis for investing in New York or in New Jersey or in Connecticut, anywhere around New York City is New York City. So Obviously, not everybody who lives in New Jersey or Connecticut or even New York works in New York City, but the reason why this region is what it is is because of New York at some point. And the reason why it's going to be sustained is because of New York. So when you're betting on, when you're buying real estate around New York City, you're betting on, in a, in a sense, in New York City. You're saying, do I think people are going to keep living in New York City, traveling, uh, working, culture, whatever? And for me, the answer is yes. Some people might disagree about that, but probably a lot of people believe that New York City is going to be a great thing. We also invest in in New Haven, Connecticut, which is a little bit of a you know different market, tertiary market, not a New York City suburb um, per se. But the reason why I invest in New Haven is because of Yale. So I, Yale has a ton of money. It owns a bunch of property in the area, and you know it's, it has the second largest endowment in of a university in the entire nation. Here we so, go. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, but uh, so investing in real estate in New Haven, particularly around Yale, is betting on Yale. And do I think that Yale is going to be a place where people want to go? That's going to have a lot of money. That's going to keep care about the city. Yes, I think that's a good that's a good answer. So you can take that analysis and say, well, you know, what's my thesis for investing in a small city in Iowa? I don't know. Maybe the returns look great on paper, but I don't know why people live there. Well, I think a good I think a good example of that is is the way that that you John identified and now we as a group are identifying properties in Atlantic City because I think what people would look at as mitigating factors to keep them away from the market things like the environment so obviously the fact that the city could be underwater uh, things like a generally um, uh, I guess maybe you would say summer literally underwater literally underwater and figuratively, so 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 a market that is uh, more based on what they deliver in the summertime so vacationers and people coming for maybe weekends or bachelor parties obviously there's the casinos down there and you found a model via Airbnb which has generated returns well above I think what you would generally get at market rate when you're talking about traditional rentals and so when you, I like your description of the thesis you bring to the table because that is a perfect example of looking at an area like Atlantic City that to a traditional for, through traditional metrics may maybe you say even if you live further away I don't know about this and turns that into that's somewhere that I want to try to source deals and, and pick up well, things you, on the cheap. You, you can also tease out your assumptions and your risk factors that way, right? So if you say I'm going to invest in an area and the only reason why people live in the area is because there is this one big thing, like there's a big manufacturing plant or there's this big type of industry, then your sensitivity is, well, if that industry or manufacturing plant or whatever closes, that's it. There's no other reason to live in the area. So I'm not saying that's a bad reason to invest somewhere, but it's helpful to have the knowledge of saying, here's what I'm sensitive to. And if any of those things happen, then it's going to be bad for me. And you know, Detroit is an example, right? So uh, whatever, yeah. Or, or another example of that, today, or I mean, quite timely is Long Island City and Amazon HQ too. There was a lot of hype and a lot of 
I think probably a lot of speculation that went on over the the last few weeks, the last few months since HQ2 was announced for Long Island City. And, you know, obviously the sensitivity there is a little bit different than it is in some other locations where you don't have such a diverse subset of industry. But nonetheless, I'm sure there was plenty of speculative work that was done in advance, yeah. uh, either, either for redevelopments yeah. or for just people who thought, oh, rents are going to go through the roof because yeah. people who are coming in are going to have yep. quite a bit of money. To piggyback off that real quick too, the L train I think is even a greater example yeah. because that was two years in the running and people signed new leases and moved businesses and sold homes. I had friends who were involved in the real estate business who were considering uh, going in with partners and buying up homes or along that area at a discount to market given what everybody was anticipating. So that's it's a great point. Or, or the Upper East Side of Manhattan where you've had the Second Avenue subway in the works for, God, I, I think it's been, subway. what, 30, 40 years? Oh, it's been since I mean, it's really World like War 60 II. plus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, World War II. But yes, it did. Yeah, and, and, and it's finally, it finally came online over the last few years. From 96 I mean. to 72. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> it's getting there. So in another right. 80 years, maybe it'll have crossed have more Midtown. than three stops. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it is amazing. And it does do a lot for congestion as well and right. for pricing along that line. Right. It's funny because when I was working for a property manager, actually, we used to uh, rent a, a two homes that were literally right on 2nd Avenue on 83rd Street where the hub on 83rd was being built. Mm. And the no, and I hate to say this, oh, I probably yeah. shouldn't put this on record, but we would probably strategically not bring people during the height of working hours because it's unconscionably loud. However, at the same time, people were then getting a discount to market. And frankly, if someone had come to us, given how delayed that process was, had come to my boss and offered a reasonable price, maybe a little bit discounted to market, I wouldn't be shocked if uh, she would have maybe considered something like that, given the circumstance. So it's all considerations yeah. to take under account. And it's all from, just from an investing standpoint, it's interesting to think about how many deals were consummated over the last 20, 30, 40 years with the assumption that this redevelopment was going to be a success because over the long term, that second Avenue subway was going to be a boon to the area. Yeah. And you know, the thing about it is you can never truly anticipate what's going to happen in a market. You know, again, the, the HQ2 example is so great because now HQ2 is not happening in Long Island City, at least at the time of this recording. So you can never anticipate what's going to happen with the market and that's okay, but I think it's important to at least have the knowledge of the factors that might implicate it. So even if you can't control them and don't know what's going to happen, it's at least a modicum of control to have knowledge of what the factors are. So for me, the, the first step in thinking about an area to invest in is is the thesis. Can I come up with a thesis that I feel comfortable with? Is there a reason why it's going to happen? And then along to, to dovetail with that, something that we brought up earlier for me is, what is my goal in investing? Is my goal to maximize the amount of money that I'm investing? Um, is my goal to learn about investing? Is my goal to make this one of many projects? To to buy only this type of asset? To buy different types of assets? To do buy and hold stuff? To do flip stuff? Um, and that depends on you. My my goal getting started in real estate was to do more real estate investing. And for me, that meant it was conducive to invest near where I was because if I was investing on the other side of the country, even if I wanted to do a lot of that just physically getting there would be very, very hard. And it would take me a long time to ramp up because even if I got comfortable with an area, I would have to get very, very, very comfortable off sourcing all of that work to a third party living in, you know, wherever it might be before I really got started. Whereas living in New York and investing in New Jersey as I started, I mean, that's a 15, 20 minute trip over that I can do at any time and did many, many times before I moved here. There's also some calculus involved with what your risk tolerance is because the Amazon HQ2 example highlights the resiliency of the New York market, where frankly, that's probably not going to make much of a ding in the economic viability of, of those areas. But if you're talking about an area in, if you're talking about, you know, like a one, a one manufacturing plant town in rural Pennsylvania, and your investing thesis is that there are 5,000 jobs in that specific area that are tied to that plant, the moment that plant shuts, there are going to be very few things to pick up the slack for it. Yeah, I, and so the risk is like, it's truly, you know, boom bust. It's either it's going to go well because you have that, or you're going to be, there, there's going to be no suitors for your for your property as tenants, and there will probably be very few end buyers should you decide to liquidate. Yeah, I, it's, it's one of the things that annoys me about, sometimes I'll encounter people and they'll be like, oh man, I'm making a killing investing in, 
city I've never heard of in state that is, you know, among the 10 least populated states in the country. And it's like, well, maybe, I mean, maybe the returns are great, but why do people live there? You know, like what, what's going on in that area? I I, I don't say that cynically because maybe there is some reason that I just don't fully understand, but you know, I bet that you could find a multifamily property in small town, comma, small state. That's going to look great on paper, but what's going to happen to that property in two, five, 10 years? I have no idea. I'm, I'm not probably not familiar with that market enough, nor can I come up with a thesis as to why it's going to do well. So that's, that's a pretty risky investment to me. Um, even if the numbers might bear out as being very conservative. To what extent, uh, this is kind of shifting gears a little bit to, but John, like to what extent, if you have vetted a particular market, let's say you're talking about New Haven, to what extent do you try to validate some of your assumptions with data? Like, Do you get into some of the demographic data? Do you get into um, average incomes? Do you look at home prices? Like what, what's your, what's your next step? I don't, I, I haven't really looked at demographic data per se. What I'm most interested in would be the rents versus price of homes for a buy and hold. So that information is extremely readily available. It's literally going on Zillow or anything, looking at what homes are and then going on Craigslist or Rentometer or any of these other websites and seeing what the average rents are. That alone is a pretty good starting point. I think crime data is very helpful. I think crime is probably one of the prerequisites to a lot of, I mean, you can have great returns on paper, but if you can't walk outside your door, nobody's going nobody's gonna to live there. I, it, it, there's a big distinction in my mind between what the returns could be on paper and what they actually are. A lot of areas that have bad crime, you look at whatever analytical model you want to look at, cap rate, cash on cash return, IRR, or whatever, and you say, oh my gosh, it's so great even if you assume vacancy of 10% or whatever, and then you go in and it's insane because you just can't get anybody to live there. You know, your vacancy is like 50% or 80% or whatever you want to say. It's funny you mentioned that because I have a theory that oftentimes the, the best deals, the best returns that you can actually realize fall at that intersection between the areas where people have these preconceptions about maybe there being too much crime or it just being undesirable for one reason or another mm. so that it, you know, it scares out a certain class of person. But at the same time, the reality is once you investigate it, there are still plenty of people who do live there and the perception of crime perhaps is overblown. Right. And so I, I think that's really where you can maximize returns. And that's where that kind of like artistic or subjective metric of like intuition comes into play yeah, where, you, I, where you actually go somewhere and you see it and you understand what the living breathing fabric of that society yeah, or to, to use is. A, a concrete example. And so I, I started investing in union city, New Jersey, and I think union city and Jersey city as well, very much have fit that thesis. So even now there's a perception in parts of Jersey city, but certainly five, 10 years ago in many parts of Jersey city and union city, that the area was dangerous and unsafe. And it certainly was in the nineties. But if you physically go to the area, if you walk around and you talk to people and you say, do you like living here? Do your kids like living here? Have you ever experienced bad crime? You know, whatever. No one says anything at all. If you look at the news reports, I mean, there's maybe domestic issues or maybe small property crime type stuff, but not anything that would really disincentivize someone to live there. But there's this widespread perception that the area is not good. And to your point, absolutely. You can make a, you can make a killing. We've also talked about this in the context of comparing certain cities that have the reputation for being kind of like the worst of the worst. But even within that classification, there are big differences. I think we were we were talking about it with some of the cities up here where people around here may say like, what are you doing buying in so-and-so town or so-and-so city? But when we go there, we feel pretty comfortable during the day. There's, you know, there's people coming to and from work, people just kind of hanging around and talking and, you know, no hostility, no obvious signs of threats really um but there are other places where where we've been where you go and you'll be you'll go like two or three blocks and all you see are vacant abandoned houses and just like the absence of life which is perhaps the scariest thing yeah and as far as that concerns an actual investment my my theory with a lot of these places up here is that while there are certain tiers of you know desirability at the end of the day there's a shortage of housing and people want to live where there's like safe, clean, quiet, comfortable place to live. And if you can provide them with that, even if it might not be an area where you personally would live, that doesn't mean there aren't plenty of you know, reasonable, nice, qualified people who will live there. 
And I think it's an important point too, because you want to try to fight your own uh, biases as you look at these different areas. So I think it's very easy to fall into this sort of ideal, especially if you're coming from outside of the real estate business, that somebody says something about maybe Irvington or East Orange, both places that we're either invested in or doing work in. And you just say, oh yeah, why would I go there? Or what could possibly be there? And then when you put your boots on the ground, you learn that there's actually opportunity, uh, whether it be in construction or investment. And I think that just actually, just the other day, I was talking to uh, friends who were from uh, the summit, New Jersey area, describing work we were doing in some of those municipalities. And they were stunned. I mean, they were flabbergasted. Irvington, what are you doing there? It, obviously, there are different areas uh, that have different levels of crime, what have you, in all these different uh, cities and townships. But fundamentally, if you build, as Ryan just alluded to, safe, good, fundamentally sound homes there, people will come, especially as uh, these towns and areas begin to get younger over time. I think you'll see, generally speaking, a shift in all of these different areas because at one point or another, they did thrive. Yeah, I think it's a great point. So something that occurs to me is a lot of what we're talking about is very specific to the Northeast. And and I don't want to gloss over it, there are listeners who are not from the Northeast, and I think it's hard to describe exactly how block by block a lot of these neighborhoods are. So kind of within that observation is, to go back to Ryan's first point, something that I, I really like to look at when I'm looking at cities or blocks or whatever it might be, is the build quality of homes. Because a lot of these homes, you know, we're, we're not buying new construction in this area. These homes were built 40, 50, 60, 100 plus years ago. And by looking at the homes, you can say, well, this area used to be very wealthy or this area was never particularly wealthy or this you know, um, unwealthy area now has become wealthy for some reason. So one good example for me is East Orange. East Orange um, is a an area in New Jersey that has a, I would say, quite negative perception just in terms of housing and demographics and crime and whatever else you want Education. to say, educational system. Um, and definitely it has some problems. However, the build quality of a lot of homes in East Orange is quite nice. And there are some areas of East Orange where you look at homes that are on a half an acre of land, which for this area is a tremendous, like a huge lot. And you say, well, this is a beautiful home. I mean, beautiful original woodwork that you could just never reproduce today, never would reproduce today. And that gives you some sense to say, well, this area at one time was wealthy. Maybe it could be wealthy again. What are the reasons why it became unwealthy? How does that work? And truly, I could walk three blocks, I mean, literal blocks in any direction from that and be in a totally different area. I mean, a totally, I, where I live right now, where I'm physically located right now, literally, I could throw a stone across a river and go into an area that is totally demographically, economically, socially, educationally different than, than where I'm living. That's pretty rare and should inform people that want to invest in areas like this to say, I need to do my homework to figure out not only the, the city, not only the neighborhood, but the block that I'm interested in investing in. Yeah. I mean, listen, we just had that happen with also a property. This is a, a little bit of a different area on the border of Nutley and Clifton. And, and, talking about, okay, on a macro level, right? you want to just know what's the neighborhood like. So we've talked about crime, we've talked about education, and we've talked about uh, socioeconomic and cultural history of the area. But also within that is, okay, so what is the designation? So being in different counties means you might be uh, designated for different public schools and different zones. Uh, so these are the kinds of things, obviously, uh, different costs affiliated with maintenance and what have you based on the history of the area and the build of the homes in the area. So these are all things that you have to consider. And I know when I'm looking at comps, even in these areas, and I'm used to growing up in New York City where truly, I mean, it's not even just block by block, it's lot by lot. It's building by building. The values change. Coming to New Jersey where the lot sizes tend to be uh, a little bit smaller, probably on aggregate than the rest of the country, it's still the same way in many respects. And looking at, at Garfield the other day, I mean, I was looking uh, near the water, I think on River Drive. And again, in certain areas, lot by lot, I see sales of similar like properties at the same square footage with similar lot sizes going variant ranges of $100,000 to $150,000. So do your due diligence on the specific area, the specific building, the specific lot. I think John hits the nail on the head with that one. And when you, if you're going outside of outside of what you know, if you're investing remotely and looking at an area where maybe you didn't grow up or maybe you don't currently live, it's also important to, to take into account some other factors that may, may be variable depending on the region. So for example, in, in Northern New Jersey, it's, it's very common that when you buy a house, you'll do an oil tank sweep and confirm that there is not an oil tank on the property. An underground oil mm -hmm. tank. Underground. Yeah. Or, uh, oftentimes, there, you, you may see them in the basement too. But of bigger concern is the 
the underground variety. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're investing from somewhere where that fuel source was never prevalent, you would never even think to to call someone out to do a tank sweep. Likewise, if you're in New Jersey and you're looking to buy something in Florida, you should you're going to be thinking about hurricane preparedness and and whether it is like hurricane compliant. Uh, likewise, in California, you're going to be taking into account certain seismic issues and concerns. So there are a lot of nuances to different areas that you should at least know to be aware of or know to ask about if you are investing from out of town. What What do you guys think about school districts? Because that's something that people talk to me about a lot, and I have various thoughts on it. Um, New Jersey has a lot of school districts because they're municipality by municipality, which in some states it's not the case. But what do you guys think about the value importance of that? I mean, it's it's huge. I think they're the way that I think about it is it is quite possibly the most important factor that a particular subset of buyers will consider when making their housing decision. But in a lot of ways, I also think that the respectability or the clout of a school district is already embedded in the price of real estate in that area. So just because I'm, t- I'm looking at one property in one school district and another property in, a, in another school district that are priced the same, I'm not immediately going to say, I'm going to buy the one in the better school district. There may be other reasons why someone would live in an area that has a less desirable school district. You may be renting to primarily seniors, or you may be looking at something in a vacation community where schools just don't matter as much. Um, so I think it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly a factor, and it's one that I would weigh considerably, but it also has to be consistent with what your strategy is. The funny thing about school districts is that it's the perception of the school district that cares, right? Like, no, there's no like definitive rating of like, this is the absolute number one best school district in the state or whatever. It's just your perception of it, if it's a good school district, right? So for for me, because it's a perception thing, I, I think that school districts, school districts are the best insulator of value, positive or negative. If you have a bad school district, and you're trying to make the area better, I think that's going to be really hard, because this is a, a far afield from real estate, but I think that it's hard to change the quality of a school district. And if you're in a good school district or perceived good, good school district, your your value is going to maintain that level because for better or for worse, people are going to continue to perceive that school district as being good. Yeah, I have, I have two points to make from uh, different ends of the spectrum. On the pro side of why to invest in an area with a good school district, no matter what the market is, no matter what point in the economic cycle we're at, if you're a young family with kids who are entering your, you know, who are turning four or five, six years old and looking to be, um, or going to be going to school soon, they're going to be, they're going to be interested in areas with good school districts. And that is going to be more of a guiding light than whether, whether they're buying at the best time or whether this particular property ticks every box on their checklist. On the flip side, to my point earlier about considering school districts in the context of what your investing strategy is. If you look at an area like Jersey City or Hoboken, years ago, those were not desirable school districts whatsoever. And I think to a large extent, at least based on what their property values are, they are still quite poor school districts. But what drove development in those towns was the demographic changes of getting very, very young and catering to a class of people that are not necessarily concerned with school districts because they're only living there in their years prior to having kids, you know, school-age children. Yeah. I mean, I think it's worth noting where where Jersey City and Hoboken, as good examples, are concerned, is that they're in spillover areas, though, as well. So, you know, when you're already, we're already constantly weighing all these different factors. Um, and I think that's a perfect example of where a lesser school district isn't going to deter you from a certain neighborhood. But I think it's worth noting for new investors or, or even intermediate investors that when you're looking at these areas, you talk about, John talked about right at the beginning of this episode, the resiliency of the tri-state area and a lot of why that makes everywhere around this uh, very appealing. Um, And I think that if you're identifying an area just outside a city, 
oftentimes your bias is going to take you towards thinking, well, look what happened to Long Island City or is happening to Long Island City. Look at what's happened to Jersey City. And you'll extrapolate and say, that's going to happen in my area. And just to be careful about that. So so to look at uh, the school districts, for example, if, if you're looking at a spillover area in a really good city, if the school district is bad, now seeing some of these other areas doing your due diligence of like-kind cities, areas, municipalities, townships, you might be more inclined to take the leap uh, and looking at an investment like that. I, I want to frame this too by saying it is the case that there are areas that are not, not only are they not getting better, but they're getting worse. And mm-hmm. it's a, it, I mean, I think we maybe look at real estate a little bit like we being the three of us with rose colored glasses because we've been investing in, you know, the longest kind of bull market that has been in a very long time for, for real estate specifically. But there are, you know, not to pick on Newark, but Newark is a city, many parts of Newark have been economically depressed since the 60s and and are still that way. And I bet you could go back to 1965 and talk to somebody and be like, you know what, it's gonna be in five, 10 years, the city's coming back, you know, we're doing this, doing that. And, and you know, I, I don't know, I, I don't know if what's gonna happen in Newark in five or 10 years. Certainly some areas of Newark have gotten better, but I would say some areas have, have stayed the same, maybe even gotten worse. So it's okay to come to the conclusion that, look, I mean, statistically, Connecticut, people are leaving Connecticut. People are not moving to Connecticut anymore. So you could say, well, I mean, some areas of Connecticut, like I mentioned New Haven, I have a thesis about, but Connecticut broadly, I don't really want to invest in a place where there's a net outflow of people. There's some reason why people are leaving Connecticut Mm -hmm. and that concerns me. So it's okay to say, look, this is an area that isn't getting better. It might be getting worse for some reason. I have a thesis about why it might get worse. So, uh, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but- I think this also comes back to just having a having an investment strategy and choosing a market based on what your strategy is. If you're bank- banking on appreciation, I think it'd be quite unwise to look at a market where all of the demographic factors and and shifts are trending in the wrong direction. I don't think I don't think it's wise to assume that your property value is going to skyrocket when all of you know when you're facing all of these headwinds. Having said that, if you're looking at an area, if you're looking for an area where your primary goal is cash flow and you're making reasonable assumptions on what your vacancy is going to be and you're not assuming 10% annual rent growth which would be you know pretty absurd in an area that isn't appreciating and isn't drawing new blood every year it's it's a matter of being consistent with what your strategy is if you're looking at an area that's going to appreciate over the long haul you should have a thesis that is consistent with that and you should have some data to back it up. What do you feel about investing in college towns? It's funny, John, because because I was actually sent an article about this a couple of years ago, even a, a buddy of mine who I who went to the Shack program with me, uh, him and his the dad. Shack program at NYU. At NYU. That's like, a very prestigious program. Notice how I pointedly do not name the school. I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> I love NYU. Love that school. The Go Shack. New York University. I believe yeah, purple and white. I think is the off color. I'm not really sure. Uh, Bobcats. Uh, who knows? When you go to all, look, your our football team is undefeated. That's all that matters because we don't have a football team. Um, so it's interesting. So I got an article sent to me a couple of years ago by this this buddy of mine and his dad and they were very interested in this concept and again the theory goes well these school towns are young they're generally thriving within the nucleus of where the the uh, school owns buildings generally speaking if it's a good academic institution they're going to look to eventually expand because they're all looking to bring profits up so they need to bring in more people who can pay full tuition so they'll expand outwards and we see a little bit of that in New Haven and and it's been maybe slow and maybe not expanded as far as some people would think but this is the question because as I now know, having been introduced to the neighborhood to John, within a certain radius, that is true. The margins still work out for for new and intermediate investors, but it hasn't come all away. I think within a margin, and when I say margin, I mean a geographic margin that I think most people would have predicted, giving the prestige and the academic successes that surround a school like Yale and the perception. To me, no matter what what your thesis is, it's almost impossible to accurately predict appreciation because any appreciation that you are assuming okay let's say let's say your thesis is temple university is expanding here that's going to catalyze the area and there's going to be a lot of growth it's going to drive property values up the other thing that can counteract that is if there are 30 other developers who have the same theory that you have and they go snatch up all developable land and they build way in ex- like in over excess of supply relative to what 
the increase in demand will support. So just because things are happening and things are trending in the right direction, in that scenario, you may actually see a decrease in property values. Yeah. So I think appreciation is always very difficult to predict. And I think it's foolish mm. to make an investment solely based off of that thesis. What, what do you think about, so I, I often have this problem, I think even recently we were talking about this, you and I, Ryan, where you'll look at an area and you'll just run the numbers and you'll see these returns, like monster returns, like 10% cap rate, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes I look at that and it's like, why don't I just buy everything in this city? You know, like why, why am I even bothering in other places where, you know, I'm not getting those returns. I can come up with reasons right now, like as to why I wouldn't, but I wonder how you guys feel about that. If you've seen places like that. Well, I mean, I think diversification is the name of the game. I think people talk about this term a lot, but to me, the first thought I have is Atlantic city is a perfect example. The returns that we see cash on cash, uh, the cap rates, uh, particularly for our model and our thesis in that area is quite substantial. Of course, Hurricane Sandy. like everybody's going to start investing in life. I, 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 like, John is just, just is like, like, stop it right now. I mean, <laughs> well, I'm just so enthusiastic about it. Also keep in mind that a lot of these models that we're running are predicated on an Airbnb model, which is highly susceptible to regulatory risk. Do keep we have to mind, give a disclaimer? Listen, you go out, you try your best. See if you could do what we do. Keep in mind, we are trained <laughs> professionals under closed pores. Uh, Don't even... Uh, <laughs> well, the reason, the reason I bring this up... Yeah, the reason I'm driving I bring a Jeep this up, up is, uh, like a 90 degree angle right now. <laughs> the reason I bring this up is because yeah. I actually texted yeah. John about this the other day. There's, mm. I think there are rumors swirling that Newark is potentially clamping down on Airbnb. I don't know if you saw the article that I sent you because yeah. once I, again, yeah. John... What he ignored me. <laughs> no, I, uh, I I didn't ignore you. In fact, I've been thinking about it constantly. Yeah, That's the that thing, happened. Ryan, is when I've you just send been, emails, we are always thinking about them. I'm yeah. not bitter. No, I'm not bitter. <laughs> ignored means yeah. I just like, you know, didn't, I just I just actively I, didn't respond. Let me it's just different. Let me just say, because that was, that sort of a parlays to the point that I wanted to make. I hate to keep bringing up Atlantic City, but the reason I do that is, look what happened in 2012. Hurricane Sandy hits, the entire area was ravaged and destroyed. It could happen where Atlantic City or Atlantic County completely clamps down on Airbnbs and throws the thesis out the window. So the idea is diversification. You want to be invested in, in a number of different areas with a number of different, hopefully successful theses so that if in any scenario, the worst case risk factor occurs, you're hedging and you're able to continue to sustain positive net cash flow throughout your entire portfolio. Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> right? I mean, what, what other? I'd be curious to know your guys' well, reasons. I, I, I think a lot of that. Here. I think a lot of that is predicated on underwriting to an Airbnb context, which I would argue is not necessarily as much of a real estate play as it is a quote unquote business play. Um, because at the end of the day, your income is going to be driven by the fact that you are effectively running mm -hmm. a hospitality business, despite what Airbnb will. <laughs> Well, Airbnb lobbyists what will do tell you, you. What do you mean by that? Because to me, I, I understand what, what, the distinction you're making between it as a, a true real estate versus just generally business hospitality play. But like when I look at different areas, I, underwriting New Haven is different than underwriting Hudson County. It's different than underwriting Bergen County. And so still diversification is diversification. Well, it, 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 it's a cash flow play. It doesn't yeah. depend on appreciation. It, it, it's really like you, you, it's not. I see what you guys say. Like, yeah, like, okay. like you, you can juice it, right? Or yeah. not juice yeah, yeah, it depending yeah. on your, how good or bad you are at doing it. I mean, to some extent it's true of management in general, yeah. but much it's, more it, so on Airbnb. Yeah. Okay. And, I think, to, and, and well, I, I think what I'm, what I was also getting at is I think the baseline underwriting assumption in any real estate deal should be, uh, more of a conventional strategy, whether mm -hmm. it's, I, I would say more of a conventional strategy, you know, if it's a two family house, underwrite it as two stabilized uh, apartments renting out on 12 month leases. And then if you think that there's opportunity to employ a strategy like Airbnb with one or both of those, maybe that's your upside case. But I think it's a super risky investing thesis to have all of your eggs in that one basket. And I think that kind of gets back to our overall investing strategy being a little bit more diversified and not having all of our eggs in that one basket. It's a, it's a good point. And I, I want to be clear that most of what we look at is not for that business well, model. And and the idea being that if it works conventionally, it's probably going to work with other means. I mean, it's an interesting broader topic for me. We've been talking about this a lot in the context of our private equity fund, which is how to quantify risk. Um, and I, I, I like the idea of baking in risk in an analytical model in a numerical model in some way, but I think that's really difficult to do. Like I, so we're talking about say regulatory risk with Airbnb, or maybe we're talking about 
a risk involved with some industry being the only driver for people to live in a certain city. How, like, how do you quantify that? How do you say, well, I think there's like a 20% chance of this happening or 10% or hundred. I mean, it, it's hard for me to do that. And so it, it can be hard to, to build a portfolio. Say you have, you know, you're trying to buy 10 homes and you want to have a, a, a risk adjusted, diversified kind of mm. portfolio. I think it's really difficult to come up with the right allocation. Well, um, well I, I think the mitigant to that is on the portfolio level and it's on the strategy side. I don't know that even the smartest quantitative minds, I think would struggle to come up with a model that accurately depicts the risks associated with that. But I think the the beauty of working in the space where we work, where our assets are smaller and you know we're talking about maybe a, a portfolio of a hundred different properties in 15 or in 10 different markets versus another fund that is working on a portfolio with a similar asset size, but that is tied to one physical property with, you know, 150 units. I think the benefit to being in our shoes is that we can we can diversify risk across that portfolio and say, okay, to mitigate the risk, like the regulatory risk of the Airbnb model, we're going to only allocate 15% of our portfolio to properties whose cash flow is tied to that strategy. Right. We're also going to mitigate risk. Uh, we're going to mitigate the risk of, let's say, Amazon HQ2's influence on our on our portfolio and on our returns right. by only limiting exposure to 10% of our portfolio in Long Island City, et cetera, right. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad that we got here, I think, because I, even if you don't have the answers to these questions, I think it's it's fair to consider them. You know, I think there are a lot of investors that start out and you know, the one mind I'm like, don't worry about all these things because then you'll never do anything. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, don't, you know, don't invest in a place just because your buddy says it's a cool place to invest, right? Um, like we, I think because of just the, our level of experience and, and what we do professionally, we being the three of us here are more analytical about it than I think a beginning investor should be or could be. But even even knowing even having this thought process i think is is novel for a lot of investors just getting started because they're not thinking about risk and and, and investing theses and and things like that in an area i think under understanding risk is a difficult topic but i think there is or maybe quantifying risk is is next to impossible but understanding risk is a little bit different and i think that is a goal that every investor should strive towards when like prior to making a significant investment decision and what i mean by that is you may say you may be looking at something in new haven and you may be looking at something next to um in another town that is heavily driven by like a smaller university you may say oh like college towns are great as an overlying thesis but i think to understand the risk of hitching your wagon to an institution like yale versus the university of phoenix which is you know uh, a quasi educational yeah <laughs> a, a quasi educational institution. No, I, I totally agree. I think the reason why I brought up investing in college towns and not to go everywhere, but what I wanted to say about it was that there's a big difference in investing in a established university than a community college. Yeah. Um, even if they both might be in a college town, not that there's anything wrong with the community college at all, but in terms of your long-term idea, is this place going to be around? I mean, I have a pretty good idea that, you know, the second oldest university in the country that has the second largest endowment is going to be around. I don't know that about a school that was maybe started three years ago that has no money that is just trying to make a quick buck or something like that. Yeah. I, I don't, I mean, it's, I think it's also worth, worth at least throwing out there the fact that maybe education down the road won't look like what it looks like today. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I think an institution like Yale, is prestigious enough that they will probably find a way to stay relevant and to live on. But you know, if in 20, 30 years down the road, education may not take the same form that it does today. We may, like, I think we kind of take for granted the assumption that four-year colleges are kind of the norm these days, but that wasn't always the case, and it may not always be the case in the future. Mm. And it's interesting to contemplate a world in which that is not the case, especially if you are, especially if you're hitching your wagon to investing in quote-unquote college towns. It, it, it's a really interesting point, and, and I want to actually touch on one thing very related, which is that there's so many things like this that are going on that, that our limited perspective, having invested in real estate only for a few years, 
can't really observe it, but but one thing that always blows my mind is the influence of ride-sharing Uber and Lyft that they have had on suburban America, I think is is tremendous. I mean, it, it's it's changed a lot what it means to live in a, in a suburb and still be able to go out and say drink or, you know, do whatever else that you maybe couldn't do if you had to drive. And imagine what, say we, you know, someday soon maybe we'll have autonomous vehicles. What might that change for people living in, in a suburb or people that have to commute? You know, what if we have the Elon Musk, you know, Hyperloop dream, or we we can get from San Francisco to New York in an hour or something like that. What, what, how might that change? Um, I am the, so the investing inspired pieces. right now. It's funny that you, <laughs> it's so funny that you brought the these future. up because I had, <laughs> if we could live on Mars, my God. <laughs> I had those same two thoughts running through my head as we were, as this conversation was evolving. And I, I don't know the extent to which either of you are familiar with like black swan theory, black swan investing. Um, but it's a great film. <laughs> I've actually, surprise, surprise, never seen oh it. God. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but the, uh, I, I think as human beings, we yeah. are, we are uniquely poor at quantifying like the risk of outlier events. And there are a lot of things that in our minds are probably perceived as impossible that are really just improbable, which means there are enough of these improbabilities that eventually something is going to stick. And that's going to be something transformative. And it's going to be something that turns on its head all of these things that we take for granted, like something like a Yale falling off the face of the earth Mm -hmm. or something like you know, Washington, D.C. ceasing to be the political capital of the United States right. or, or New York ceasing to be the most relevant city in the state or in the country. And, and I, I, this is kind of a diversion from where we're going because these two are inspiring me with the words of wisdom about the future. But I, I do want to also address to newer investors, kind of like myself as well, and, and go back to a, a point about not necessarily being overly cautious, uh, but but understanding sort of where you're at in terms of your equity means and in terms of the amount of research and experience you have in certain areas, uh, even looking beyond what the future holds. Because I, I, one of the things that I come back to, because I, I think about all of these potential changes that, that are going to occur in society and cities and suburbs, et cetera, which will affect markets. And I would just encourage, I think, investors, when you're identifying the geographic location you're going to, to just be real with yourself within your means and not to necessarily extrapolate beyond what the numbers and area and people who are on the ground are telling you, uh, because you may believe in a lot of these things that are coming to these areas, but it's very easy to fall into the confirmation bias cycle of saying of, of believing a certain ARV for a flip or believing a two family is going to generate, you know, XYZ at market when really it's rent control or rent stabilized. And I realize this seems like a huge diversion from, from where we were, yeah. but I, I do want to get back to sort of the, the, this idea uh, that when you're looking at some of these areas to, to be that maybe that first project isn't always saying, well, this, this, and this is going to happen. So I'm going to be super aggressive and invest in, you know, a 5,000 square foot commercial space, staying in, in for example, the multifamily market might be the best idea for you as you're analyzing the geographic area that you want to invest in for the first time. Yeah, it's it's all for me, it's a it's a risk reward sort of calculation, right? I mean, it goes back to one of the first things that we were talking about for me, which is just to define your goals. Mm-hmm. You know, if your goal is to learn more, then that dictates where you're gonna invest. If your goal is to make as much money as you humanly can, then that's a very different goal. If your goal is to make as much money as you humanly can in a year versus in 10 years versus in a hundred years, that's a very different goal too. Maybe your goal is just to house hack and not have to pay rent and get a little ancillary income on the side. And and that's a different uh, thesis that comes up depending on the Honestly, if your thesis is long, if if your investing horizon is long, you can make some pretty fantastic investments. I mean, there are families in, in New York that have generational investing theses. So, I mean, they, they literally bought property in World War II that only now are they really cashing in on and good for them. You know, I mean, that's, you know, that probably in 1950 buying a very large piece of land in Times Square uh, might've been very speculative and it probably looked like a horrible investment until Can you imagine, oh you know, God. the, uh, the Giuliani administration, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, it probably looked like a bad investment until pretty recently. And, and now it's, it's really paid dividends. I don't know what the return on investment might be, but it's substantial. Um, but it's probably a lot. So, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but if your thesis is, I want to do a flip and sell it in three months, then, you know, 
don't invest in Manhattan, but I mean, there, there are different categories of things that you should buy. Yeah. I think the word that I was looking for, the phrase I was looking for to, to, to sort of tie in all these different points is, is being as a, as a newer investor or even an intermediate investor, a uh, cautiously aggressive, uh, both in actually allocating your capital and your equity and also how you analyze these deals. Don't yeah. be aggressively cautious though. Don't be aggressive. Hold on. Let me try to th- figure out that pretzel in my head. Don't be aggressively cautious. I like that. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I learn something new from these guys every day. Yeah, I guess the the way that I would frame this in my mind is before you look at a specific deal and before you decide they're going to make an investment, first understand what you are investing in. You're investing in that market. You're investing in maybe that school system. You're investing in that economy. And it's not just, is this property going to, on paper, show that it's going to be profitable? There are, there are a variety of inputs and there are a variety of factors that are going to contribute to whether those rents are going to stay the same over the next 20 years, whether they're going to maybe increase or decrease, whether your vacancy is going to increase or decrease or stay stable, and and whether the appreciation on the property is going to be what you hope it will be, whether it's going to be stable or whether it's, you know, whether you're going to be stuck down the line with a property that there just aren't as many buyers for as as, as what you were expecting. Yeah, and I, I think to, to to that point, and that's what we talked about the fact that the three of us look at things perhaps more analytically than your your most common investor, which makes sense because this is what we do for a living. Um, but I think kind of moving into the next episode, that's where I get excited about talking with our listeners and everyday investors about both from a basic, intermediate, and expert level. Uh, what are the best ways to analyze the numbers that you're seeing in front of you? Because like we said, there are a million uh, outside factors that affect whether or not an investment is good, both forward-looking, backward-looking, and in the present. So just sort of understanding, you know, when we say cash on cash, when we say cap rate, uh, not just what those means, but how to get those numbers and whether and how that will inform your decisions after you've decided on which geographic location you want to invest in. Yeah. And one thing, I mean, as I've said in many, many uh, podcast episodes, not that we have very many, but something that I've said several times is I still think it's really important just to to do it and get started. So what I hope people would take away from this is not that I need to be sucked into this analysis vortex of numbers and thoughts and risk and everything else, but that these are important things to consider. I don't have the answers. We don't have the answers to many of the questions that we posed, but it's important to consider them. However, at the end of the day, if you want to get started, just get started and do it. So I, that's how I got started with not any of this analysis or thought process and I've backed into it and it's been fortunate for me, but I I wouldn't have had been in that position, been in this position if I didn't just start. Yeah. And I would also just think about the risk that you are taking. I think a lot of the reason why this kind of analysis paralysis or the, these kind of these kinds of mental models are there for quote unquote market analysis. Those are in large part driven by developers who are looking at building 600 units in an area and where at the margins, the difference between 2% population growth and 2.5% population growth are going to be the difference between whether they have enough people to live in their building or not. Right. If you're talking about a two or a three unit building in a town that's been around for hundreds of years and where there are dozens and dozens of large employers, chances are the landscape is not going to change that much. So if you've got a decent deal, which we'll discuss how to find in the next episode, you can pretty safely pull the trigger knowing that the variables that are outside of your control are likely not going to move the needle too much. Guys, thank you for your time and your expertise as always. I appreciate it. For the folks listening at home, make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast to reach out to us on the Brick by Brick, that's Brick X Brick Facebook, and make sure to listen to us on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening.